Well, our sermon text today is, uh, I almost said Matthew, Mark chapter 4. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. It's the parable of the sower. And I'll ask that you stand this morning for the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, Thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's let's pray and ask God's blessing upon His word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for Your word. We thank you for blessing us with it. We ask even now, as even as Your Son said to that crowd by the sea. Uh, We know he said, let he who has ears, uh, let him hear. We ask that you would help us in our weakness. Give us grace by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, that we might understand it rightly and that we might uh, be obedient to what is revealed uh, therein. For Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the distinctive characteristics characteristics of the gospel according to Mark. If you haven't been with us this as we've been going through the book, one of the things that sets it apart, even from the other two uh, synoptic gospels, that's Matthew and, and Luke, 
is that Mark's focus, the focus in his gospel, is, uh, is almost exclusively on action. He focuses on action. Mark, if you read through Mark, he seems to be in kind of a hurry to move things along. He, he uh, focuses on action very much. He uses the word immediately, you might know, uh, no less than 41 times in 16 short chapters. That's a lot. It's immediately, even in this parable, we hear at least a couple times, immediately something happens. And then this happens. Then something else happens immediately. Uh, Mark does not spend a lot of time covering in detail the extended preaching and teaching discourses of Christ. It's not to say that Mark finds Jesus' sermons or teaching unimportant, just that his account has a slightly different emphasis and tone. And you read through even John or Matthew or Luke, you've got these huge blocks of Christ's teaching um, laid out for us. And in Mark, you don't get a lot of that. In fact, in Mark, there's only two chapters in his gospel account where Mark kind of switches gears and slows things down to include extended portions of the teaching and preaching of Christ Jesus. And one of those is here in chapter 4. The other one is in chapter 13, later towards the end of the book. Well, that, you know, that being the case, especially in Mark, any, anything Jesus says is important and should make us take notice. Anything that's in Scripture is important. It's given by God, by inspiration, and it's there for us to take notice of and take heed to. But the fact that Mark, in his gospel, so rarely does it, but, but suddenly does it here, should make you and I sit up and take notice when he takes the time to include such a large section of Christ's teaching the way he does here in chapter 4. Now, if you think about it that way, there must be something about the parable of the sower that makes it awfully important to the telling of Mark's gospel for him to do that, for him to include this in this account. You know, the fact that this parable is also found in Matthew and Luke should also lend weight to its importance. The fact that we find it three times in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, should make us see that it's very important. It's even more important in some ways than other passages. Well, here in our text, Jesus compares the various various responses that people have to hearing the gospel, to hearing the word of God, to the way that different kinds of soil responds to seeds being planted or scattered in it. It's interesting to note that three of the four kinds of soil that Jesus talks about here bear no fruit. They have responses, but only one of the four bears fruit. And it's only those who truly hear and and bear fruit, really, that are really hearing the word rightly. It's only those who bear fruit in this parable who really believe the word that they're being preached to. And so you and I are warned here at the outset that merely hearing the word of God, although that's a good thing to hear the word of God, merely hearing the word of God is not enough. It's a good start, but it's not enough to just hear it. The word must be heard, it must be understood, it must be believed, and it must be obeyed. As we're going to see as we go through the the parable this morning, bearing fruit is the primary evidence of a true and living faith. Bearing fruit is the primary evidence of a true and living faith, a faith with roots in Christ. We're going to look at at least three things today. We're going to look at uh, kind of taking with the flow of the text, the, uh, the outline of the text itself. We're going to see first the actual preaching of the parable in verses 1 through 9 when Jesus preached it himself. 
Secondly, we're going to see what he says in verses 10 through 13 about the purpose of parables and the purpose of this parable in particular. And lastly, the point of the parables, the preaching of the parable, the purpose of the parable, and then finally the point in verses 14 to 20, the point or points of of the parable of the sower. So let's look at the parable itself in verses 1 through 9. Once again, we find Jesus, quote, beside the sea. And another large crowd, verse 1 says, another large crowd gathered about him. We're only in the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel, and we're seeing the repetition of things happening again and again. He does a lot of things by the sea. A lot of his ministry is by the sea. Where did he, where did he choose the disciples, the twelve? Most of it was right by the sea. And he's also had other times of preaching by the sea. This time again, in verse 1, we see a boat. A boat involved. Not just a boat like we saw that, that Peter and Andrew and James and John had and had to leave to follow Christ. We saw back in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 9, that Jesus uh, commanded that a, basically a getaway boat be kept at the ready. Remember, the crowd was so big, it was so much crushing in on him, they feared for his safety. He literally said, you know, keep a boat ready so I don't get crushed in case I have to make a, a hasty getaway. Well, here we see another boat when Jesus is teaching by the sea, but this time it's not a getaway boat. This time it's, it's used so he can broadcast his voice to the crowd and be heard. Some commentators believe that the natural acoustics of this part of, of the area there were of such an ideal way, the way it was set up naturally was ideal for just kind of a thing like this. It was kind of a natural amphitheater. He didn't need a microphone to teach who knows how many thousands of people might have been there at the shore where Christ was teaching them. Now, in, in the parable, the first place where the, some of the seed fell, what does he say there in verse 4? It was along the path or beside the road. And what's the result? Jesus says the birds, verse 4, the birds came and devoured it. Now, the road or the path, it's the same dirt, it's the same ground, it's the same earth, but on a path, it's, it's walked on so much that it gets compacted, it gets hardened. You, know, you, put, you put a seed on it, what's going to happen? Well, it's not going to take root. You know, we, we tried this kind of thing in our own backyard, tried to plant uh, sunflowers. And I had to break up that dirt and break up that dirt with a shovel. It still didn't work. Uh, but uh, it was hard, and it wasn't even a path. Imagine a, a, basically a dirt road. It's so compacted and hard that the seed couldn't take root. It's hardened from time, from people walking on it. Well, the soil was too hard for the seed to penetrate and take root, so it just sat there on the surface, and the birds came and ate it up. Notice that, that Jesus here doesn't use the usual Greek word that simply means to eat. What he uses here is a strengthened form of that word that means to devour or to consume completely. It's kind of a violent image. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to, we've, we've, I've gone in my past, I've gone to a, a place, I think it was down in Santee, where they have ducks. And the ducks, uh, you know, they almost scare the kids because they're so, like, there's no hesitance, there's no kind of hanging back and waiting for the food. As soon as they see the bread, they're practically swarming your legs. You almost have to pick the kids up to feed them. That's this kind of a thing. As soon as the seed hits the ground, bang, the birds come and there's nothing left. It's kind of a violent, seemingly violent image. When the, words, when the birds there are done, there's nothing left. There's no more seed, no more anything. 
Well, the second place where the seed fell, Jesus says in verse 5, is on, on rocky ground. On rocky ground. What's the problem with the rocky soil? Jesus says it did not have much soil. Now, the idea here is not that there were rocks all over the surface. You, know, you see that when you drive around the hills up here. You see rocks sticking out. What it is, it's a thin layer of soil. And under that thin layer of soil, what do you have? You have a, be- a rock bed, a bedrock right underneath the soil. So to the naked eye, when you look at it, it looks fine. If there's dirt there, it should grow just fine. But when the, when the plant tries to take root, what happens? It hits that bedrock, and it's got nowhere to go but up. You know, most of the time that saying is a positive thing. It's got nowhere to, you know, no, no place to go but up. Well, in this case, it's not a good thing. If there's no root, if there's no root, what happens? It's a shallow soil. Uh, and what happens, Jesus says in verses 5 through, through 6, he says immediately it sprang up. Looks good, right? It sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. So the ground is so shallow with that layer of rock right underneath that the plant had nowhere to go but up. And without the roots to draw moisture, it withered in the heat just as fast as it sprang up. Immediately it sprang up, immediately it withered. Easy come, easy go. Now, it started off pretty good, didn't it? Yeah, immediately it sprang up. It looks good. You're, you know, if you were the guy planting, you're hey, wow, look, this one's faster than the other ones. This is going to be the really good crop. But that's not, that's not what happened. The third place, the third area of ground where the seed fell was... Among thorns, verse 7. The result was that the thorns grew, Jesus says in verse 7, the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. So this time something grew, but the wrong thing grew. And the wrong thing kept the right thing from growing. Thorns grew instead, you know, weeds grew instead of the, the plants. So, so far in our parable, we're 0 for 3. You know, if you're a batting, if you're a baseball player, 0 for 3 is not a good batting average. Uh, well, the fourth, the fourth and the final place where the seed was, was planted or was scattered, verse 8, was on good soil. On the good soil. What was the result of this time? Jesus says there, it produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So the good soil is the only one of the four places where the seed was sown or scattered where it bore fruit. And it bore a lot of fruit. This is an amazing harvest. The size of the crop varied, 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. But even in the case of the 30-fold, this is an amazing harvest. There's, in other words, at some point, this isn't overnight, obviously, but there's no mistaking which one was the good soil. If you're that farmer, that sower, uh, and you came back at the time for harvest, it was pretty obvious which part was the place where you planted well and which part was not. It bore fruit in the good soil. It bore a lot of fruit in the good soil. He didn't have to guess and look around and try to figure out where the good soil was. One commentator notes that Jesus, in his preaching of this parable, he says that this parable is framed at the beginning and end with a solemn call to attentive hearing. And what does he mean by that? He bookends the parable with calls to hear, call to listen. Verse 3, Jesus says, listen. Now listen up. Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And then again in verse 9, at the end of the parable, what does he say? He who has ears to hear, let him do what? Hear. 
you know, it might sound redundant, right? Wasn't everybody listening? Weren't these thousands of people, however many there may have been, weren't they following him to hear him? You almost wonder if they were looking at each other like, what does he think we're doing out here by the sea? Of course we're listening. But Jesus twice tells them to hear, to listen. And to hear, and that should get our attention. We, I think we are quick, most of us, to assume that, of course, of all people, we get it. We hear it, of course, we get it, right? We assume that we, of course, understand, even if others don't. And Jesus' words here, I think, should serve as a warning for each of us to check our pride at the door. And it should be a, a call for us to examine ourselves. We each need to dig deeper into the soil of our own hearts to see where we belong, where we fit in this parable. Because this parable is about you. This parable is about me in some ways. And Let's look at the purpose, the next thing, the purpose of the parables. Why did Jesus use parables to begin with? You know, very often people, preachers, they get to these parables and they say, well, Jesus, Jesus told parables to make things easier to understand. You know, they, I've heard that so many times I can't even, I've read it so many times I can't even tell you. And there's truth to it, right? You know, you, you tell a story or you use an illustration. You know, they're always telling pastors, you need to use really good illustrations to help people understand. Well, Jesus is using an illustration here. He used a lot of them and he used a lot of them from daily life, didn't he? If, if you use an illustration that people aren't familiar with, it doesn't help. Uh, well, and they were certainly an agrarian uh, culture. Uh, and so, you know, people say that's why, he, that's why he used parables. That's why he spoke of farming. That's why he spoke of casting nets. That's why he spoke of all these things. Uh, but I think we're going to see that's not quite the reason that Jesus spoke in parables. In verse 10, Mark writes, When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Now, Mark uses the imperfect tense here for ask. And so it's not like they just walked up once and said, Hey, Jesus, you know, just between you and me, you know, what's the deal with the parable? You know, why, why, why don't you speak plainly? You know, why are you telling these stories? Because in, in the telling of it in verses 1 through 9, there really isn't any explanation. I mean, this might not have been the only things he said, but there really wasn't an explanation for the meaning of it. So the disciples and those with them, the ones that were in the inner circle, they come and they say, you know, what's the deal with the, with the parables? And they were asking him multiple times. It's as if you know, one after the other were coming up to him and saying, hey, you, Lord, you know, what's, what's the deal? What's, what does this mean? This wasn't a matter of casual curiosity on the part of those near him. They were on the inside with Jesus. You know, they were with him when, when the crowds were gone. But they wanted to make sure that they really were on the inside with Jesus. They want to make sure, they want to know where they fit in that parable. And so they ask him, and what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say what the purpose was for that parable and for parables in, in general? He says in verses 11 to 12, Mark writes, He said to them, Jesus, Jesus said to them, To you it has been given, uh, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? It's almost like he's mildly chastising them. You really don't get this? Because if you don't get this, you're not going to get the rest of them. And remember it said... In the beginning, he spoke many things to them in parables. He taught them many things in parables. 
Well, there's a lot of things we can get from this quotation from Isaiah. One of the things here that we're taught, and I think we should pick up on, is the sovereignty of the grace of God and the salvation of sinners. Outside of Christ, every single one of us is dead in sin, deaf to the voice of God, and spiritually blind. And if you're a believer in Christ, why is that? It's to use the phrase that Jesus said. It's because it was given, verse 11, it was given to you to understand the secret of the kingdom of God. It was given to you to understand the gospel and to believe and to turn to him by faith for life in his name. So any understanding that you and I have of the gospel and of the scriptures in general is caused not for pride, but for praise, for praising the grace and mercy of God. If you understand the Bible, if you know your Bible, it shouldn't puff you up. It shouldn't make us puffed up and prideful. It should make us thankful. It should make us praise God for his mercy and grace. Because many, according to this parable, many hear but don't get it at all. Many hear and don't understand. And Jesus cites Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 to 10. It's one of the most commonly quoted and alluded to verses, passages in the Old Testament in the New Testament. And in doing this, in quoting that passage or alluding to it, Jesus in some sense tells us that the unbelief of the Jews of his day was actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's what Matthew, in Matthew's telling of, of, the, of the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verse 14, he uses the word fulfillment, that it might be fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah. So he's saying this is that. This, what, what happened that day by the sea, was at least a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah about those who heard but didn't understand and, and saw but didn't, didn't perceive. At bare minimum, those who are outside show themselves to be just like the people of the prophet Isaiah's day. who heard the, They heard the word of the prophet Isaiah, but whose hearts were hard and who had deliberately closed their eyes to the truth. That's kind of a sobering, you know, that, that's really a sobering passage that Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6 starts off so brilliantly, and so, so amazingly. You've got the prophet, you've got the call of the prophet, you have this vision of the Lord lofty and exalted, and, and the seraphim, the burning, the one, the angel, takes a coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips, your sin has been atoned for, and then what does Isaiah say? He hears the word saying, whom, whom shall I send? And Isaiah shoots his hand up, here am I, send me. And then what does God tell Isaiah? God tells Isaiah this. Go and you know, give the word to the people and they're going to hear and they're not going to understand. They're going to see. They're not going to perceive lest they repent and be healed or forgiven. Imagine that kind of a call. I'm glad that wasn't my, uh, when I was ordained, that that wasn't my, my uh, charge that the man gave me that preached my charge to the pastor. You know, be preaching and, and let them never understand. <laughs> let them come and hear every week and sit there and scratch their heads. I mean, that, that's what God told Isaiah. This is what's going to happen. That's what God told Isaiah. You know, it's a, it's a picture of judgment. Those who have hard hearts, whose ears barely hear, and who have deliberately, according to Matthew's telling, deliberately closed their own eyes to the truth, what does God do? God gives them exactly what they want. They close their eyes, okay, you don't want to see, let's not see. You, you plug your ears so you don't hear the truth, well, let's really make you deaf. You're really not going to understand anything. You know, in effect, God says, have it your way. 
You want it? You got it. So the parables of Christ had a dual purpose of both revealing truth to his disciples and also concealing the truth from those who had refused to believe in him in the first place. And the parable of the sower helps to make sense of the various responses to Jesus that we have seen so far in Mark's gospel. That's probably part of the reason that it's there. You, you know, you've seen all these responses to Jesus in, in the first three chapters that if you weren't already familiar with them would probably make you shake your head and say, well, you know, the people that should be believing in him aren't. And the people that you wouldn't think much of are. And the people that he picks aren't the Pharisees and the scribes and the important people, the religious leaders. He picks a bunch of dumb fishermen. And they're his main guys. They're the ones he's going to use to build his church. Here, you know, here in this parable, we see something of how you and I are to understand, as strange as it is, the rejection of an outright hostility toward Christ from those who should have been his most ardent and sincere followers, the Jews, especially the leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. What were they doing? They were plotting his death. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, they went out and plotted his death, only in the third chapter already in Mark's gospel. It also, I think, helps you and I to make sense of the continuing responses, even in our own day, to the gospel of Jesus throughout history and up and including us now. How are you and I to view the indifference, the unbelief, and even hostility that's even today still so prevalent among us? The hostility to Christ and his gospel. This parable, I think, helps us understand it. His quotation from Isaiah 6, I think, helps us also to understand it. That brings us to the third and final point, or points, uh, and that's the point or points of the parable itself. Here Jesus does us the favor of actually explaining the meaning of the parable to us and he takes the guesswork out of it in many parables he doesn't do that and so you have to dive into the commentaries and figure out well, what does everybody think of this well Jesus kind of gives us his own commentary on the parable no other commentary is really needed the first thing he makes clear is that the seed, what's the seed what is it that the sower is sowing when you hear that parable he says in verse 14 the sower sows the word you know, the Bible likens uh, the scripture itself, God's word, to seeds and to planting all throughout the Old and New Testament. Jesus was actually sowing the word as the sower among that very crowd while he was teaching the parable. It's like he's telling it and living it out at the same time. And really, in a sense, if we understand it correctly, the parable of the sower happens every single Sunday where the word of God is sincerely and faithfully preached. It, it's, it, it happens every time the gospel is preached. The parable of the sower, some parts of it at least, happens. The sower sows the word. He plants the word. And one of the four soils that he, that he tells us, what, are, what do they represent? The first is those who are sown, the ones along the path. Verse 15, when they hear, he says, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. I think it's important for us to remember that these are people who actually hear the preaching of the word of God. These people hear the preaching of the word of God. We should not assume that these are all people who are outside of the church. We shouldn't just assume that if you're within the walls of a church, even the right church, so to speak, on any given Sunday, that this couldn't possibly apply to you or to me. J.C. Ryle who lived uh, back in the 19th century, he writes this, There are myriads of professing Christians in this state of soul. 
there is hardly a church or a chapel where scores of them are not to be found. That's kind of hard to imagine somebody saying that in his day. Now, that was true in Ryle's day back in the 19th century, back in the 1800s. How much more might that same thing be said in our day, where so many attend churches where the word of God is not even being taught at all? How many even sit under the clear preaching of Scripture in that state of soul? The hardened heart, where the word takes no root, it just bounces off. Well, the next one is the shallow heart, or the superficial heart. That's the person with the ro- that's represented by the rocky soil. This person seems, on the surface, much better than the person with the hard heart. Jesus said that when this person hears the word, what do they do? They quote verse 16, immediately receive it with joy. I mean, this is, this is the response you want as a preacher, right? They hear it, they accept it, they're excited about it. This one appears to be very much a genuine convert. The seed of the word appears to be growing and even growing quickly. What's the problem? Jesus says, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, here's that word again, immediately they what? They stumble or they fall away or they're offended. You know, this is the person who is all happiness and enthusiasm about the Bible and about the gospel of Christ until that gospel of Christ starts costing them something. Trouble or persecution, whatever it might be, this person never truly believes in the first place. And how do you know that? It says they have no what? No root. They were never truly rooted in Christ, who is the source of life. What about the soil with the thorns? thorns is the worldly distracted heart in verses 18 to 19 Jesus says this he says and others are the ones sown among thorns they are those who hear the word remember they're all hearing the word hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful I would say in our day our church is not filled with such people with people that hear the word but are so distracted by other things, the cares of the world and such things, that it never bears fruit. John, 1 John 2, 15-17, John writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You, know, you, you and I probably live in the most distracted age in the history of humanity. I won't even get into the whole Pokemon Go thing that's going on right now. Uh, if you don't know what that is, be thankful. Uh, uh, you know, Sometimes it seems like we can barely pull ourselves away from our smartphones long enough to eat. You know, are, are you hearing the word of God with a distracted, divided heart? That's, that's what that thorny soil is like. Well, the last thing is the open heart. The open heart, the good soil. Verse 20, Jesus says, Those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This is the only one of the four that bears fruit. You know, Maybe you've heard this preached and taught before, maybe more than once. I know I have. And I've heard some who try to say that the, that the last three of the four 
represent real believers. That the only one who doesn't really believe at all is, is the hard soil by the path. I think that's exactly wrong. I think that's exactly backwards. There's one that bears fruit. There's one that looks like it bears fruit. Right? The one on the, on the thin layer of soil. It sprang up quickly with joy. Yay! Uh, only one bore fruit. Only one. The harvest, you know, the harvest seems small in the parable, doesn't it? In some ways. For years I've read this parable and thought, well, you know, that means that the harvest is going to be, you know, one here, one there, but most, three of the four, you know, 75% of the people who hear the gospel are going to reject it in some way. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching. I don't think he's teaching us the math of evangelism at all. But the harvest sometimes can seem to be small if we don't read this parable correctly. You know, he's not teaching us that three out of four people will reject the gospel and not bear fruit. I don't think this gospel is, is taught to lower our expectations. You know, that, that the harvest is going to be quite small, but keep plugging away. I don't think that's what he's teaching at all. I don't think this parable is meant to lower our expectations of the power of the gospel unto salvation for everyone who believes. I think we often miss the fact that the harvest spoken of in verse 20, well, it varies, right? 30, 60, or 100, is humongous. I've read this parable for years and never really picked that up. I read it as very little fruit, but some somewhere. That's how I've read it for a long, long time. It's not what he's saying. You don't plant a seed, those of you who have a green thumb unlike me, you don't plant a seed and reap 30-fold. You don't plant a seed and reap 100-fold. That's not how it works. You know, if you're back where I grew up, the cornfield, you know, the, the farmer doesn't go out to the field with one you know, seed of corn, one kernel of corn, and go, field is about 10 acres, done. <laughs> Maybe I'll put two in, you know, just to make sure I've got a, a good crop. You plant the whole field. And if you don't plant the whole field, what do you get? If you're lucky, you get where you planted. Sometimes not even that. This is, this is a picture of here's a seed in good soil, and blam, you have half a field of crop. That doesn't happen in real life. You know, the, the people hearing this parable, if they were farmers or agriculturalists, they weren't sitting there nodding their head going, that's right, that's the way that normally happens. They might have been saying, why would you plant seed on rocks? Why would you plant seed by the road? Kind of, you know, it's not a farming technique parable. They, they weren't taking notes. I've been doing this wrong the whole time. I knew I should have planted by my driveway. You know, I knew I should have planted. No, he's, he's saying you, you scatter the seed indiscriminately. You preach the word to everyone who will listen. And, and many who will listen will not bear fruit. But many, those who believe, will bear spectacular fruit and harvest. The gospel of Christ does exactly what we see in this parable among the good soil. It starts off small and unimpressive outwardly and goes on to bear fruit that would make any farmer start preparing for a comfortable retirement. It's a spectacular harvest. The harvest is great. It's not small. What does Jesus say elsewhere in the Bible about, he says that the harvest is so great to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers because the harvest is too big. We don't have enough workers. There's not a glut of workers standing around with nothing to do with their hands and their pockets. And this idea of bearing fruit, you see it in Psalm 1. The one who, hear, who, who delights in God's word, who meditates in it day and night, the law of the Lord, what happens? He bears fruit in its season. Always bears fruit 
in its season. One conclusion, I'd like to quote the words of J.C. Ryle one more time on this parable. He sums the whole matter up and he says, Now let us ask ourselves, what are we? Under which class of hearers ought we to be ranked? With what kind of hearts do we hear the word? Never, never may we forget that there are three ways of hearing without profit and only one way of hearing aright. Never, never may we forget that there is only one infallible mark of being a right-hearted hearer. That mark is to bear fruit. To be without fruit is to be in the way to hell. That's, that's what this parable is teaching. This isn't, hey guys, it's a good idea. You probably want to bear fruit. You know, you know if you have a choice, you, you might want to do more than just listen. You might want to actually believe what's said and bear fruit and obedience. Uh, and I think he's exactly right. We are to read this parable just like those first people did and say, you know, what kind of hearer are you? What kind of hearer am I? Don't settle for hearing alone. Don't settle for just listening to sermons and listening alone. You must believe on Christ. You must continue in his word. And then his word will bear much fruit in your life. The fruit, what fruit will it bear in your life? If you're a believer, the fruit of sanctification. That God works in you. You don't do that yourself. But when you, when you believe by God's grace, that same grace will work sanctification in your life. It will work the fruit of knowing and doing the will of God. Just as he said at the end of chapter 3, that his brothers and sisters and mother are those who what? Who do the will of God. And finally, you will reap the fruit of eternal life with Christ himself in heaven forever. That's, that's what the good soil hearers do. And that's all the grace of God, isn't it? You know, the, the parable is not for us to look at ourselves and say, well, I'm, obviously I'm good soil. And I'm good soil just because of my... We're all bad soil outside of the grace of God in Christ. Outside of God's grace in Christ, we are all one of those other three. Maybe all three. Hard hearts, distracted hearts, and shallow hearts all at once. All conspiring to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bar us from heaven. But the grace of God takes bad soil and tills it up. And makes us have eyes to see and ears to hear that we might believe and bear fruit to the glory of God of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your scripture. We thank you for the parables. We thank you for the parable of the sower. We ask that you would give us grace, each one, to examine ourselves, whether or not we are in the faith, that we would we pray that each one here this morning would, would truly know and believe in you and believe in Christ and have life in his name and because they have life in his name, that we would be rooted in Christ and therefore bear fruit and season much fruit in a way that glorifies the name of Christ. We also ask that if there's anyone here this morning who is uh, yet in a state of one of those other soils in the parable, whether it be a hard heart, a shallow heart, or even a distracted worldly heart, that you might, by your grace, give them as well eyes to see and ears to hear. They might believe on Christ, have life in his name, and bear fruit to the glory of his name for the rest of their lives and even unto eternity. For it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.